Hey gang, I'm back. Uh, I went away for a week, and now I'm back. I took a nap. Have you taken a nap? Maybe you should. But first, maybe listen to this podcast. We're going to talk about games. It's Playscape LA. It's good to talk to you again. The internet, the podcast listeners, the playscapers. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I sort of intentionally but accidentally disappeared for a week. Um, post-release, I was still working last week on Hyperlight and uh, making some fixes and adding some stuff we're going to be adding in the future. But um, mostly I just uh, took a little bit of time off. I took a whole day off. That was kind of cool. Um to kind of reset and to pl- make some plans for the future, which uh, is always coming down on us hard or fast or whatever whatever image you have in your head of the future. Um, before we get started on this episode, I want to say uh, I'll be at PAX East. Uh, most of the Hyperlight, much of the Hyperlight team and myself will be at PAX East in Boston this weekend from Friday through Sunday. Um, so if you are there, uh, tweet at us say hi that way maybe if you're showing a game if you're a game developer uh say hi try to aggro us i'm just going to be mostly floating around packs this year we are not uh demoing because the game's out uh, we don't have a booth not doing a lot of press at this point that could change but uh will just be floating around so um if you want to say hey please do the easiest way to do it i think is just to tweet at me while packs is happening and then i'll like just drift towards each other and then like high five and be like holy shit we met through a podcast. Isn't that, isn't the internet weird? Uh, it is. Anyway, that's PAX. Um, my guest this week, uh, is a friend of mine, a game developer and an advocate for change on the internet in general. Uh, Zoe Quinn is going to be joining me, uh, and I will give her a proper introduction shortly. Um, but I guess I'll check in since I haven't talked to you all in a little bit over a week and a half. Um, uh, in line with what's going on, I think the, uh, this podcast is now going to be weekly, like a good old weekly show. Let's call it like a like your serialized favorite television show, or probably not your favorite, but you watch it anyway, because it's like good, and maybe sometimes it's heartwarming, or you watch it while you eat dinner. Uh, that's that's what this podcast is. That's the goal. Dinner, dinner fair. Um so the game's out. Let me t- yeah. Let me t- tell you what's been going on. Uh, Hyperlight Drifter has been out now for, I think, uh, two and a half weeks. It could even be three and a half weeks. Uh, I'm looking. It's been like eighteen days. So that's two and a half weeks. Uh, what has happened? Well, now that we're this far past release, here's what's going on. Like I said, we're still working on things. Uh, I haven't taken a vacation yet. I would like to. I've taken a little bit of time off. My brain has certainly cooled out of crunch, out of fast working mode. Um, but I'm still still on the ground. Still go into our studio, Glitch City, uh, every day. Um, but things are a little different. Um, and one of the big things that I've been thinking about or that we thought and talked and shared amongst the team last week is that reviews are pretty much all out at this point. The 
the major sites that that we all read, at least the ones that we sent copies of the game to, and in hopes that they would play it and talk about it uh, to tell their readership and to to critique it, are out. Um, we have an eighty six Metacritic, uh, which is like a green color on Metacritic, which I guess is Metacritic's way of being like you made a good thing, green light. Um, there is a history in the games industry, I don't know if you're in it or not, uh, of Metacritic um, being used to determine things like bonuses for employees or whether or not studios get shut down. Uh, if you're not familiar, Metacritic is a site that aggregates review scores and displays the average. So this is the average response that the critics have given to a game. Um, obviously, uh, we don't have a publisher we don't have anyone other than our Kickstarter backers to answer to, so we are not at risk of being fired uh, or losing some sort of uh, bonus thing. But yeah, uh, we are above whatever threshold companies usually use to to potentially shut down operations. Uh, something like a 75 or an 80 sometimes is a threshold where employees are told, you will get a bonus if your game does this well. That is all to say that that is all me trying to understand what the number means. What does it mean that our game got an 86 uh, and presumably will we'll now sit at an 86 for the rest of time, at least until console releases and maybe the, those will have their own scores. And it's weird. Uh, as everything I've talked to you about, I probably say it's weird at the beginning of every episode of this podcast. I don't know. But, um, man, what, how do I put this? I think that for me, uh, th this is the first game I've made that's gotten reviewed by most of the sites, or like every site I can think of that uh, reviews games that I have read a review on uh, has reviewed our video game. Uh, I've made a bunch of games before. Um, I've made some bigger-ish games, like I worked on a game called Pirates of the Caribbean Online for Disney. That's like a big game, ostensibly. Um, but uh, everything I've ever made independently... Uh, which on the release, things that have been released is mostly iOS games, um, didn't really, you know, didn't get reviewed by that many sites, mainly because sites don't review iOS games that much, and because uh, our my, my footprint was smaller and people didn't know about some of these games. Um, you can see some of them on my website, teddydeef.com, if you want, plug. Um, but only if, it, I, only say, <laughs> I only say that if you're curious, like, where I came from, I guess. Uh, and all the stuff I was doing before Hyperlight Drifter. Point being, yeah, I am trying to understand what it means to have a game reviewed by sites. Like, it got the full sweep of people playing it. Um, and I don't... I think I was expecting that reviews would feel like a report card, right? Uh, reviews for us didn't come out for about a week after release because uh, we mucked it up and didn't give review copies in, uh, with enough uh, early lead. You're supposed to give, you should give at least a week, if not two, um, ideally, so that the people assigned to review your game are not thrown into a horrifying nightmare of having to crunch by like playing your game straight for many, many hours. Uh, we failed to do that for a lot of reasons. But um, yeah, so reviews didn't come out for about a week. So we had all this player response happening. Sales were good. Steam reviews were positive. But I was still waiting. I was like, okay, well, the critical reviews are coming out next week. And that's what I'm going to use to determine whether we did good, what our report card is. Right? Right. Uh, that's not how it feels. It's not how it feels. And, and let me walk you through why. Um, 
when there is a good review, when I've read a good review, and we've gotten some wonderful glowing reviews, um, we've gotten 90s, we got a perfect score from the Escapist, uh, 5 out of 5, I don't know, I mean, it doesn't really mean perfect, but uh, on paper it says it says perfect, it says 100 on Metacritic. Um, when I read a good score, I think, cool, this is flattering. And I look at the response, I look at the comparisons they make, the way they describe things, what they love about it, um, and I guess I feel, and I feel good about that, but it it's not like a like your parent like your like your granddad or like your parent um telling you they're proud of you you know it's not personal um it's just someone's opinion and so that's that feeling of feeling good is like uh i don't want to say fleeting uh but it's not it doesn't get deep into me it doesn't get deep into like oh like i i impressed the person who i've always wanted to impress um there is an element to that because there are people who've reviewed it who I respect very, very much. But it doesn't, th- that doesn't provide some sort of calm. Like, okay, cool. Uh, I can say to myself that we made the the good thing. We we succeeded. Uh, on the flip side, when I've read a bad review, and we've had some bads, uh, uh, we had a couple in the seventies. Um. My instincts that I've built over time as a creator, as an indie game maker, as a whatever you want to call this category of person, is to shield myself. Like, I've learned over time to try to not read comments uh, on, for example, if uh, a game site writes up our, does a preview of something I'm working on, I try not to read the comments because uh, many people know this, that, like, if you read 100 good comments and then one shitty bile-filled, mean comment that somehow gets at you, um, that's the one that you're going to remember. That's just, like, how it works, I think, because when you're making things, you trained to be self-critical and to be, you know, the biggest critic of your own work so that you can make it as good as possible. But that means that you're really susceptible to the bad stuff, to the negative critique. So some of that I found translated to bad reviews where just, like, my gut reaction to negative comments, negative reviews from an actual, from a reviewer, from a person who is paid to do this, who is a professional player and reviewer of games, uh, will be to be like, eh, whatever. Uh, they don't know what they're talking about, or, oh, like, um, what do they know? Or, yeah, I don't, I don't agree with their opinion, right? Uh, so... I kind of come out in the middle on reviews. Like, it's super cool that these reviews are all happening. And and don't get me wrong, this is not like a lack of um, uh, appreciation for what's happening with this game. I, like, the fact that we have a game that has been reviewed by all these sites, that all these sites decided it was worth their time, um, their money, to, to pay, pay someone to play our game and review it, is is incredible. And it's an honor and... Um, that that in itself touches me. I think more than anything else, just the fact these reviews exist at all is um, that's kind of the dream when you're making something independently. Is like more than anything else, you just want people to pay attention to it. I've said this before. So people reviewing it at all is them paying attention to it. People saying good or bad things in the Steam forums is people talking about, caring about, paying attention to something that we made. Uh, one of the first things I read. I don't think I've told you all this. One of the first things I read on our Steam forums when the game came out was um, 
the, there's this feature that I put in the game that's this big challenge, uh, and it's like a dash challenge to see how many dashes you can link together. Uh, and it's a side thing. It's not important for the game, but for people who are completionists or who want to feel like they have mastered the game, it is, in their minds, a, a requirement. And it's hard. Uh, it's just a t huge test of endurance, mostly, because it's a very long challenge. Anyway, one of the first things I read on the Steam forums was, the dash challenge is the worst thing in video games. Like, period. Um, and that was, uh, that was rough. But I, I, I think I'm, I'm wondering here, but... Man, the point is that I don't think reviews are the... I'm ke I keep looking for the thing that's going to bookmark or uh, bookend this experience for me in a way that I can come to you on the show and be like, uh, we've finished the process of releasing this game and it feels done and let me tell you how how that feels and when that happens. So if you're planning on making a game or anything and releasing it, you know, and you're wondering what's it going to feel like and when is it, when do I get the reward? Uh, part of me is like, I feel responsible. I want to have an arc that ends here so I can be like, this is how it happens. And then at the end you feel, you feel good. And I, and I do feel good, but, um, I thought reviews was going to be the thing. Um, we had a release party last week. I thought that was going to be the thing, getting handshakes and hugs and congratulations. Uh, we're going to PAX East this weekend. Uh, part of me thinks that's going to be the thing that's going to make me feel like, yeah, we did it. Uh, it's done. The movie about, in my mind, of us making this game is over. Roll credits. And I think that it's just more of a patchwork. I think that... There's not going to be one hug, one review, one event that's going to really put a close to this experience for us, compounded by the fact that we're still doing business related to it, we're still doing the ports, it takes time, it's, it's not a clean ending to a production. But they all do help, and despite what I'm saying about the reviews, the fact the reviews exist, reading the good ones and the bad, contribute to a gradual feeling that I made a thing, that we made a thing, and then it's out. And that hopefully, I think, I can buy in to the fact that people are playing it. Uh, that was a little long intro, um, but thank you for listening. Let me introduce to you my guest this week, uh, Zoe Quinn. Uh, Zoe and I had a really interesting conversation about the craft of making games that I'm very excited for you to hear about. Um, we touch on what it means to make games, motivations, things like that. Um, Zoe, if you're not familiar, uh, most recently uh, runs uh, a program, a site called Crash Override. Crash Override is a crisis helpline and victims advocacy group. And they fight issues surrounding online abuse. Uh, so they're a place that people go if they're being abused and they need help and they don't know who to turn to. Um, uh, if you are familiar with Zoe, you will know that uh, this this operation, this crash override thing, uh, was inspired by a lot that she's been through, uh, a lot of abuse she's taken herself. Uh, she's also uh, been writing a book of the same name, Crash Override, which will be uh, coming out eventually. Books are a physical thing and take a long time production-wise. But, um, uh, man, uh, she is more importantly, or, or um, not more importantly, but... Uh, the onus of all this, or the not the onus, the origin of the things she has gone through and the creation of Crash Override um, is that she has 
received and faced abuse in trying to make things. She, like everyone else I've talked to, is a maker of things, uh, and in this case, games. And she fucking loves video games and loves making them. Uh, she has uh, the game you might most know her for is a game called Depression Quest, but she also did narrative design on Framed uh, and tons of super weird funny like bizarre games which is really uh, an aesthetic that you'll hear her talk about a lot comedy um uh, J- she made some games uh, like jeff goldblum staring contest which uh you, you should play uh, waiting for godot the game and Busey or and this is all part of the title Busey or i'm having a nervous breakdown and pop culture references are my only remaining coping mechanism uh, these are all things that she's made all games that she's made uh Super interesting stuff with like a very particular voice. So yeah, I hope that you enjoy this conversation because it was an opportunity for, for you and for me to focus on the craft, uh, focus on the reasons why she makes things, um, which is really why I do this. Uh, and if you, are, if you are familiar with Zoe, if you are a supporting her, supporter of her or followed her or whatever you have heard um, or read, um, there sometimes feels like a, a dearth of opportunities to really hear uh, what it is she does and the craft that she does that she is defending uh, her right to do and other people's right to do with Crash Override. So, yes, without further ado, uh, I will give you this conversation. I'm giving it to you. Let's listen to me and Zoe Quinn. really know how to sound check anytime i'm put on the spot i just kind of ramble awkwardly i guess i could talk about neopets do you want me to talk about neopets give me six neopets um oh god pressure pressure uh there's gellerts uh usils kachiks loops bruces lennies how is that's i think that's seven i think we got at least we got at least six there okay good i'm gonna get deep comfortable here what day is it i don't fucking know do you have like a regular week no. also we're starting the podcast Hi. oh, oh okay. welcome to the podcast cool Hi, podcast. <laughs> Say hello, podcast. Do the thing, podcast. No, like, I mean, yeah. Do you have a regular week? Do you do you pay attention to the work, the, the days of the week? Oh, no, I haven't done that in a while. Like, I, anytime I have something to do that's tied to any specific date, I set a Google reminder that makes all of my devices yell at me a lot. Otherwise, I'm not going to pay attention to that at all. I, I had tried, or I try sometimes, because I'm like, oh, I should take a Saturday or something. And then I always end up figuring out that, I work best if I just keep working during the days. Yeah. Because maybe I don't like daylight anymore or something. <laughs> Daylight's kind of overrated. Well, Bad I'm, for your skin. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Anthony Carboni taught me that oh, on his what a fancy television man. program. One of many. Do you feel like, I don't know, when do you work best? Um, It's really, so it's kind of been a struggle to figure that out, especially since I've got pretty severe ADHD. Mm. Um, so my answers are very dedica- uh, different, um, depending on if I'm, uh, medicated or not. Mm. Um, if I'm not medicated, the answer is never at all. Okay. <laughs> um, but like on meds, it's, it like kind of goes in circles, like cycles, like I'll shift my schedule to based on whatever the project is. And it also depends on what I'm working on. Cause like I find with writing, if I have to like write something that's better for later in the day. Mm. But if it's like a physical thing, like if I, I'm, 
um, creating anything like a physical object, that's always better earlier on for me. And then like that momentum carries under. So mm. it's like trying to stack my tasks based on how much energy I'm going to have. Um, but like being on call 24 seven for casework with Crash Override kind of throws a wrench in those plans. Mm. So it's very much like kind of, you know, trying to work with the way that my brain is um, and kind of like stack things in a way that'll make the most sense and allow me to get the most done. I know a lot of people who like to work in myself included work in the wee hours because mm -hmm. everybody shuts up and goes away. <laughs> and like, even if you want to tweet, like less people, fewer people will respond to you. I don't live that kind of life. That's man. true. <laughs> That's, it does not matter what time I tweet because there's been several bots set up to archive everything automatically. Cool. Yeah. Super cool. But I mean, I, I do kind of like the wee hours, but not like staying up super late. I actually really mm. like getting up super early especially because like working on books and stuff, all my publishers and all that stuff, they're, they're on the East coast. So if I wake up early, I can like kind of, you know, be a bit closer to their schedule. Yeah. And also nobody is awake yet. Cause I mean, I, I still have too many friends and time zones where it's like, Oh, I'll, Oh, I'm up super late. So I'm talking to uh, like my British friends who just woke up Yeah, and now I'm going to be distracted. Oh, and, and now, or my Australian friends are still up. So I'm going to talk to them because I, I, it's just like the cycling. <laughs> I know how much trouble I'm in for the next day based on what nationality the people I'm talking to yeah, currently right. are. <laughs> like, oh fuck, I'm talking to Japan again. Yeah, it's well, a Japan night. <laughs> it's a Japan night. I should probably make some emails that are going to disappoint some people about my plans tomorrow. That's, that's like rare. I feel like most Maybe this is a like a misunderstanding or like a, a, a falsehood at this point that like, oh, video game people keep late hours always. No, I mean, that that does sound fairly like correct in my completely anecdotal experience. Right. I kind of was forced into morning personhood by just the nature of what I have to do on a daily basis. And I thought for sure, like going into I'm like, oh God, I have to wake up so early. I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. But then after like a week or so of being mm. up at like six, I'm like, oh wow, this is actually really great. I get so much done before anyone else is conscious. And then I don't have to talk to them till tomorrow and can focus on making stuff. Man, that's cool. Yeah. So you mentioned like the reasons for waking up then you talked about like writing stuff and publisher stuff being on the East coast. Yeah. Yeah. But then also crash override stuff. Are you doing, so do you have to do a lot of interfacing with the publisher throughout the process of writing for the book? Well, when I say publisher, I more mean like my editor and oh, stuff okay. like that. Like okay. my editor and my agent are both East Coast. Like people you actually want to talk to Yeah, a people basis. I need to talk to and and stuff like that, hmm. which is going to, it's um, also going into the project I'm working now on now, um, games wise. Mm -hmm. um, Everybody is in Los Angeles except for my co-writer who lives in Massachusetts. So um, being able to talk to him in ways that make sense, but he's up super late anyway. So it kind of like evens out. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't even matter anymore. You just kind of message someone and assume they'll be awake eventually. Yeah, it's kind of the beauty of uh, asynchronous uh, teamwork type stuff is like it's just there and you can leave it. And if you have that, it, it also depends on your understanding with the other people, right? Because like mm. working online has introduced so many new kinds of social awkwardness. Go or, on. So like if you send a message and it says seen... It's like there's different relationships with people where if you just get hit with a scene and nothing else, they might get mad mm -hmm. or they might be in, in my case, this is like these, this is like the best relationships I have or, or like it's seen. And that means they know I've seen them and that it's cute, like in my mental queue of stuff yeah. I need to respond to that I might not necessarily be able to do immediately because of a million other reasons and things going on. 
Yeah, read receipts and currently typing emoji oh, are like my... Oh, God. The, there's got to be like some word dedicated to like the kind of special anxiety you feel after sending someone a specifically vulnerable mm -hmm. thing and mm -hmm. then just waiting for the the active status to come up or, or something yeah. like that. Like, uh, like going to a collaborator and being like, hey, we need to have a difficult conversation about something. Like when wouldn't you be available to schedule that? And then just the dread of waiting. And then the second layer of dread, which when you get the read receipt and, and being like, oh, no, oh, no. And then the dread of waiting for the typing icon to go away and the double dread of when it when the typing icon appears and then goes away and then appears and then goes yeah. away. And you're just like, oh, no, now I'm in trouble. Like there's all these little social nuances now that come with the digital age of, you know, us all living and working online. I couldn't get out of my head just then images of every sentence you were saying just being a different subtitle for a new Judge Dredd movie. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, none of these are actually lining up, but I'm just going to keep picturing them. That's a fun, yeah, that's fun. Yeah. The other thing that I love is that most or many like typing programs or chat things like are fucked or like the connection is uh -huh. inconsistent. So I've had many friendships with like, where I'm having like a deep conversation and it shows them as beginning typing. And then there's like dead air where yeah. it looks like they've stopped typing for like a minute. Yeah. And then I get this paragraph. Yep. Uh, Facebook does that to me a lot. Um, yeah. Also, yeah, that's what the does one. active even mean? Like, so and so was active this long ago. I've, I've, I've known people that are like, oh man, my boyfriend was like active between the hours of eleven thirty and two a.m. Like, uh, something must be going on. It's like active could mean a lot of things. We don't actually know what that means or if you're being ignored or not. And it's like such, it's such a like granular level of things to be neurotic about now. I know. I hate it because I'm so neurotic about it. Yeah. I come from a long line of Insta texters where like, if you text us, you probably know, like if you, if you message me, I'm going to message back probably immediately. Right. Um, if like we're engaged in a conversation. I used to be in that camp, but then there's too many things and I'm too trying. many messages. I'm trying. I shouldn't be. It's it's an interesting thing that reminds me of the whole dichotomy between uh, guessers and askers. Like when someone asks you a question, if they're asking it because they've already guessed that your answer will be like, if you're like, oh, hey, is it cool if I borrow 20 bucks? Mm. You know, that question from some, from like a guesser, they've already decided it would be cool if I, if, yeah. if, if I borrowed 20 bucks. So this is like a no risk interaction for me. Mm -mm. And I'm only going to, you know, ask if I'm sure you're cool with it. And then there's uh, askers who are who genuinely are asking like yes or no is but either answer is fine, right? Mm -hmm. And then when a guesser uh, is being asked a question by an asker, they could get all offended because it, since they come from a place where if they ask yeah. a question, they assume there's an answer there. But an asker really just is asking. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. then there's this communication breakdown where the huh. the guesser is like, oh God, they're like. What, how dare they even ask me that? And the asker's yeah. like, I was just ask, like asking a question. Oh my God. That's crazy. I've never heard that terminology used, but I'm really familiar with that dynamic because yeah. I'm a deep asker and like Same. I have plenty of guessers where I'm like, yo, I just, I was just asking. I just wanted and they don't yeah. believe you either yeah. so often. Is that no, like I, this is a legitimate question. It's like the whole problem with if you ask somebody, if you're, if your butt looks fat in these jeans, it's like, mm. no, I really, I really just need that feedback. <laughs> That's important for me to know. I, I I swear to God, this is a real question and not a trap. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a deep that's a deep trap. Yep. I mean, not a trap. Definitely not a trap. But yeah, I mean, the whole interaction is almost like so foobar just because there's a million different. It's like at the center of all these invisible social interaction ley lines. Mm. Good dead air. Yeah. Wow. Broke it. Sorry. I let it go. No, that's <laughs> awesome. Um. So yeah, let's step back. Uh. You do a lot of different things. Yeah. And I do like a few different things. So 
if you were like the nth degree of what of the patterns that I try to build that find that fascinates me and like I want to understand that do you do you try to do you put any energy or do you have any ability to like balance your current portfolio of projects you're actually working on in some way that they provide you with different things or are you just kind of like hit by a project and you're like well now I'm working on this I mean, I think when I was younger, I definitely was more in the the latter camp where I'd be hit by something and just, I I realized recently that I'm uh, incapable of just trying something and that like, I will throw myself Mm. completely into whatever I get interested in. Like I, like, I I think it's just a byproduct of being a mechanic's daughter and just growing up, Mm. taking apart everything to see how it worked and then putting it back together, sometimes successfully. Um, like for example, I, uh, I got this basil plant on Amazon prime that I was going to be like, Oh cool. Living basil plant that I can, you know, use for a week and make really baller crazy salads. And then uh-huh. it, it's like, it comes in a plastic cup and it's not meant to live very long, Okay. but I kept this freaking thing alive for like two and a half months and it started breaking out in flowers and stuff. And I'm like, crap, I'm like attached to this now. Well, I should replant it. So I, I go to home Depot and I come home with like five different plants um, three separate pots, a uh, whole lot of like plant food. And then I ended up like the next day building a greenhouse in my living room. So you're like the perfect example of science where you're more about coulda than shoulda. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm definitely learning how to temper that and like not do that as much. Cause I, I don't know if it, it, again, like it could be part of the whole ADHD thing is like the hyper-focus, right? Yeah. Because like the side of that is that with most things that I did that with, I would get bored almost immediately. Yeah. And this unfortunately would also translate to like relationships in my life. Like mm. someone would be like, Hey, do you want to date? I'm like, yeah, sure. And then I'm like, throw myself into it and then leave with great enthusiasm like two weeks later. Mm. So it's like all these little immature ways of dealing with that, that drive of just wanting to throw myself at something completely just to understand it. Yeah, no, I'm similar. Like I'm, I often say I'm like all in or all out in yeah. like most respects. Yeah. It's just tempering that in a way that doesn't uh, screw other people over or screw yourself over is is the magic in dealing with that, right? Yeah. Because I used to be like, oh, I should change this about myself. So I'm going to do one project and focus on it exclusively. And then it would be like, oh, I'm burnt out immediately and I hate everything about this. <laughs> this is suffocating. And then it's like, oh, okay. So if I just, and, and that's honestly one of the reasons I gravitated towards games specifically is um, mm. most of my games I've I've made solo because it's like, when I get burnt out on throwing myself coding, I, I like switch yep. to art. And when I get burnt out on that, I can switch to design or testing or any number of these things. Like just because like games is so are so cross disciplinary, it's yeah. like very easy to flip between like six different things in one project and not totally shoot yourself in the foot. That's sort of what I ended up doing with with the production of Hyperlight, where it was like I need to do side projects just because I need to not code, but I need to do something productive. Yeah. I'm spending so much time coding. I'm like I need to do arts or music or whatever. Yeah, man. I, yeah, that's super interesting. Well, so like, how do you, how does that end up panning out in terms of failed projects? Because I have like, a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's good. It's, I'm kind of glad I have a lot of failed projects because I've learned something from all of them. Mm. And like, the thing is too, is I'm still fairly new to, to game development, at, at least like relatively compared to a lot of my peers. Like I started coding at 23. Mm. Like I didn't, like I'm on, I'm coming up on five years of game development. Okay. So, you know, and like two of those were largely tanked to loud circumstances beyond my control. Sure. Yeah. Um, so it's like, I'm, I'm still like, I did a project for a while where I was making a new game every two weeks as like mm. sort of a interactive web comic. 
And part of that was just to, to fail repeatedly and aggressively mm. and really hard um, on smaller term projects. Because yeah. my larger term one that I started, like, it would have been my first game outside of jam games. Like, I sunk two years into and got nowhere. And, and it was miserable and awful. But I learned so much, especially about comedy games in particular, hmm. that I'm really glad that project failed and that it failed in the ways that it did. Because I learned so much uh, about what not to do. I've heard a lot of, or just like I find rhythms to be something that people learn a lot about themselves and they're always surprising to me yeah because like i've had projects like kyoto wild which is like a game i started as a project and i feel like as far as anyone was concerned i worked on it for like a year before i focused on before i changed focus to some other stuff and like i feel like most of that game was made in like six days that makes sense not six days in a row but just like six hellfire days where i was just like coffee coffee yeah up all night kind of love those days well, yeah, I mean, that's, I find that a lot of, especially indie developers, because of what you're saying, like, not just, I want to not code, I want to do art, I want to change discipline, but also, like, they just have to change project. Yeah. Even people who I associate really strongly with, like, one thing, mm-hmm. like Brendan, Brendan's, like, really productive, Brendan Chung is, like, really productive and seems straightforward, but he's doing the same thing. He's, like, taking days or weeks to do, like, side projects or jam things. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's healthy, especially for games that take, like, years to make, because, mm. like, you, you get like three years into a project and you're a different person, a different artist. Like you're, you're knee deep in this thing you started when you were a completely different person that you've sort of ship of Thessiest into. And if you don't like indulge those outside impulses, like, you know, by experimenting with something small or, you know, doing something in a different format entirely, then I mean, that that's like a whole side of you as a creator. That's just in arrested development until you finish the game and can move on to the next thing. What is, so for failed projects, I find that that's like often, it's interesting to see how projects fail or and what it looks like when they fail, because there's like ideas you have where you're like, oh, I can't work on this now, I'll work on it later, and then that never gets made, but some do, and then there's ones where you work on it for a little while, but then you need to put it down for the reasons you're saying, Mm -hmm. to do other stuff. Um, I don't know, like, can you think of what your failed projects look like? Like, how did they fail? Like, is it disinterest? Is it that you hit a wall? Like, for you, what is it? It depends on a lot of things. Like, a a lot of what I'm into with game design is, like, getting up to a certain point in pre-planning and then just seeing what the game actually is. Okay. And um, then trying to listen to the game. And if, you know, if the game's telling me that this is, like, a horrible monstrosity that shouldn't exist, then it's like, okay, yeah, this is not, this did not turn out at all how I wanted Mm. it to. Um, This is a dead end. I don't think there's anything here um, that's really that compelling. It was better in my head. I'll just leave it. I actually have a folder in my Dropbox that's, like, archive of failures. Good. um, That that has a lot of uh, stuff like that in there. Even just, like, small things I do finish and don't think are that great, I throw in there. Like, there's a number of games that I've made, released, and then took off and threw in the garbage. Because I'm like, Mm. I did this primarily to learn something for myself. It served its purpose, but it's not necessarily anything I'd encourage somebody to play. So there's, there's like, failures of that, of just, like, quality of, of, like, just experimenting. And, you know, it's a failed experiment. Then there's, like, the whole thing about, like, picking who to work with which is something, one of the things I had a long-term issue with, with um, that the game I worked on for two years and never finished. Mm. Um, like I was just picking, I, I was new, you know, I did, I did like the real common mistake that I think a lot of newbie game devs do where they're like, I'm going to form a company with my friend. <laughs> We've never made a game together, but we're friends. 
and we have an idea and it's totally gonna work out super well you guys because we're friends and also we don't need a contract no no never you did that contracts are for jerks yeah yeah i mean we didn't we never even got that off the ground like we had we had like a rented office space and everything and we didn't make anything for the the few months before i realized i'm like you know what i think we're actually very different people creatively Mm. and that this it's like any it's like any kind of relationship whether it's like romantic or friendship creative relationship is like another axis of specific things and ways that people relate and interact and sometimes there's no freaking chemistry yeah and it's fine i mean like it actually worked out for the better we're still super good friends and there's like no animosity and I've, I paired him with someone else who had a very similar creative style and they've been like working together on projects for a long time and it's the cutest thing. I'm like, oh, I, I played matchmaker and now they're getting married. That's so cute. I mean, it's it, that's really good that you managed to try that out and not burn down the other flavors of friendship or the other like relationships with that person. Oh God, that's always that so too. hard. It's so hard. I just had to ask a good friend to take a backseat on the current project because I met someone else and that there is there's like a spark of creative chemistry that's mm. incredibly difficult to find and especially since the current project is a comedy project like you have to have that rapport that back and forth that riffing you know where whatever comes out of putting two of you in the same room is not something either one of you could have done um on your own right like it's this thing that's larger than you that's bigger than you and born specifically of that chemistry and that interaction which yeah. is like magic <laughs> man yeah that's tough yeah it's hard to like, ooh, yeah. It's 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 harder to like shed collaborators than is to find them. I think. Yeah, it's like collaborators are, even in some ways, it's like I, I'm way more nervous asking somebody to make a game with me or make anything with me than I am like asking someone on a date, mm. right? Like, cause that's like that's like a serious commitment. And I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, it's it's a commitment. Yeah. And it's like having a weird little brain baby with somebody and and there's just so much responsibility and it feels like the curve is is inverted when compared to like either just friendships or romantic relationships where like people getting into friendships or something romantic or whatever like there is a understood cultural thing of like we're gonna both kind of be sussing this out and being careful and like maybe this isn't gonna go well or like maybe we'll be friends i don't know um and there's so many checks and balances or like gates you have to get through to actually becoming like close like even just dates yeah like you don't like going on dates before being like okay we are a thing like you get to do that but with like creative stuff it's like unless you specifically set out to do that the assumption is like more of a hiring based Mm. thing there's also like what you're talking about is like if you find a spark or a chemistry or something like you just want to run with that real hard because that stuff comes rarely yeah and i mean then there's a question of like okay do the logistics around us working together make sense? Cause like yeah. even when the creativity is there, maybe the commitment isn't maybe um, it's, it's really just like any kind of romantic relationship, but video games or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I say about most things. Yeah. Video games or whatever. Hmm. So like when you're working on a couple different things, I don't know. Like, do you, do you have cycles? Like I know you've been working hard on your book. Yeah. And probably mostly on your book. Um, I mean, the edit the editing process is like a back and forth, right? Like I'll send mm. a thing off and then, you know, wait until it gets sent back, which is always like those little brief moments of coming up for air be- because something's in editing or whatever. Mm. Like that's when I get a lot of other stuff done, mm. which is honestly like my lifeline right now 
Um, is other stuff. Yeah, is other stuff that has nothing to do. Just because like the topic of my book is so freaking personal and yeah. it's a really difficult creative process um, to like take this thing that happened to you and sort of, it's like, a, it's like objectifying yourself, but not like in the sexualized way that most people think of, like mm. taking this thing that's part of you and then turning it into an object, like a book or, or a table or, you know, like this, this thing Okay. and accepting that you can't get all of it in there because no book can contain the entirety of a person yeah. or even most things. Right. And then in my specific case, talking about like a lot of horrible stuff that's happened and trying to not, you know, get lost in that is, is difficult. And then trying to make sure that since it's such a sensitive subject to other people that I do right by everybody else and all the mm. pressure that's like, you know, kind of on my head as, as a first time book creator. And then that the fun, creative dark nights of the soul that constantly happen being like, is, you know, is this going to be successful? And if it is, which is almost a harder question than if it's not, mm. um, is it only because all I am, all I am and all I'll ever be is human clickbait topic of the day, or am I actually a good writer? Will I even be able to tell, or will people praise me for the former when it's, when it has nothing to do with the latter? They'll just so be like patting me on the head and saying, good job and Oof. politically allying with me, not actually looking at my work and deeming if it's quality or not. God, that's like that. It's such a multiplication of what of like a, a creative problem that is inherent to making anything, which is like that you have to boil down your, you have to, re, you have to carve out and pair out interests. Yeah. You're like, this is a game specifically about this. Yeah. And it's like, God, I hope I'm not known. Just It's like getting typecast, but with, yeah. a pers- with people's understanding of your personality. Yeah. It's like you, the product. Yeah. And yeah. And I mean, like it's at the same time, like I'm lucky in that I even get to tell my story at all, but yeah. it can't ever be the full story. You know, there's yeah. almost, only so much stuff you can put in a book, right? Like it, it won't be, it's like a snapshot of a very specific time in my life yeah. um, that I am so not, you know, like it, the, the, the thing that comes to mind that can encapsulate this is I did a talk at GDC. It's my favorite talk I've ever done hmm. called uh, comedy and games and underexplored genre, um, where I talk about various approaches to how to actually pull off comedy and games. And cool. someone left a comment on that, that just said this, nothing but this is what you deserve to be no- known for. And it's like, Ugh. I just fucking bawled my eyes out. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's like, it's it's a tr- it's a tricky thing to yeah. to to balance like how you are defined in the mm-hmm. public eye because it's like this separate identity from you mm-hmm. right like there's all these little fragments of you there's the you that you think you are there's a you that you, other people think you are and then there's the you the fictional character that exists out in the world as a symbol of maybe your work or what people want to yeah. read into your social media or whatever but it's it's a simulacra of you that is independent how do you like tie this to other experiences you've had when it when it comes to like creative work like what would you say to date is the the like the biggest release experience you've had in terms of something that you've put out that you've gone through that cycle for oh man i don't know it's it's like different every time right yeah um i think it sounds silly but one of my favorite things that i i kind of just released and put out there was like the only thing that i'm um like the only game type thing that I made and released since, um, since I became kind of targeted by Gamergate mm-hmm. two years ago, it was this little thing called waiting for Godot, the game. Uh-huh. And it was a loading screen. <laughs> and 
it sounds weird and silly, but like even just putting that out as that joke, yeah, like and being able to be something other than you know somebody that bad stuff happened to, um, yeah, and being able to make people laugh again because like it's probably weird to people who haven't really interacted with comedy that much to be to see that like I've got this mild wide streak of comedy through me since I'm known for Depression Quest, but anybody who knows anything about comedy is like, oh, of course that makes sense, yeah, and being able to get back to that. Hmm. Instead of being like harassment girl or depression girl or any of these other things that were just kind of assigned to me Hmm. um, is really important. And that I think that happens a lot with anybody that um, ends up in the public eye because something bad happened to them is it the bad thing can overshadow who they are as a person. The things that happen to them become the story and not who the person is. And the things that they make or the things they care about kind of fall by the wayside. Well, that's why it seems so so much more difficult but also uh commendable that like you're doing the crash override stuff because like you're not really you you haven't like run from that even though like you don't want to be known for it and you're doing all this other creative work like you're not throwing away your experiences with this like you're using them in a constructive way yeah i mean it's partially just out of frustration with how badly the issue is getting mangled by so many other outside parties that Hmm. you know like I, I think I'm in kind of a weird, unique spot as an activist um, in that I used to be a huge part of the problem when I was younger. Like I was part of Anonymous. I didn't send death threats or anything like that, but like I definitely helped DDoS the Church of Scientology when I was younger. Wow, and I was okay. I was like in the raid IRCs. I was all about that. And I mean, like that was years and years ago, but still like I used to be on the other side of it. So and like I grew up online and I got, you know, I I didn't have the best childhood and I ended up seeking out truth online but my notion of truth was all the stuff nobody wanted to tell me or be honest with me about so I got really obsessed with like you know sites like rotten.com and and seeing like I became so convinced that the worst humanity had to offer was what everybody had boiling just under the surface and I think a lot of people end up in stuff like anonymous because of that and because it feels like the only honest expression you can find because if you assume everybody is terrible the people that are at least like yeah we're all terrible to seem like a you know, safe and truthful option. And I was young enough to believe that. So I've, you know, now that I'm older and kind of matured out of a lot of that stuff, it's like interesting to have this perspective as somebody who, if Gamergate happened several years earlier into someone else, I would have been on the wrong side of it. So is that kind of why you, like, why did you make the choice to jump into doing this book? Because I'm sure, like, I've been in Hollywood long enough to know that, like, I'm sure no matter what, you had people coming at you being like, write a book, write a book, and we'll <laughs> buy it from you. Like, Yeah. And then you have to make the decision of, like, well, is this even fucking something I want to do? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been, I've been like, writing stuff since I was 15. It's always just been a thing I've done, um, you know, even before I really considered myself much of an artist and was still doing, like, all these crappy Riot Girl punk bands in upstate cool. New York 10 years too late. Fanfics? Were you a fanfic writer? No, I was never fanfic writer, but I definitely read fanfic. Okay. And then I made fun of people who made fanfic because, again, teenage shithead. Yeah. But, Did, yeah. Would you target specific fandoms? Sorry, I'm, I'm going to... I'm so curious. Oh, I super hated furries because everybody did back <laughs> oh, then, no. which is, like, it's so shitty because, like, now that, like, I, I, I don't think I really understood much about it then. It was just, like, it, it seemed like an easy punching bag because, again, yeah. everyone was doing it. And, you know, I was basically socialized by the internet. So if the internet was into it, it I was very internet-y about it, mm. which is, like, super shitty and sucks. Like, yeah. it, like especially growing up now and, like, I know a lot of furries and they're like every single one I know is just this exceptionally kind person. Hmm. And it's like, I 
I can't believe I was ever judgy about this, but I mean, teenagers. Do you feel like releasing the book is like, does it feel like, like what, like, is it a closing point for you? Cause it, part of it, what you're saying sounds to me like you need to tell the story because people are telling it wrong Yeah, and there's just nobody else who's going to do it properly. So you just fucking, you just have to. Yeah. Right? I mean, that, that was definitely a major motivation, but the, the entirety, like why I really committed to the idea of writing this book is essentially, um, just another pronged attack on the, the stuff that allows this sort of thing to happen to people because, mm. Like I can write all the blog posts I want, you know, like, and, you know, I think the turning point for that was I wrote this thing called Not August Never Ends, uh, like, two, like a year ago, um, about how it's like, yeah, this stuff doesn't stop once it gets like, it becomes like perpetually feeding itself. Mm -hmm. And for people like me, for people like Anita Sarkeesian, for a lot of us, it's just does not ever stop that whatever thing started, you know, this, this like cascade of abuse like mm. it it's even if we stop talking about it because you can't constantly talk about it um you know it's still in the background it still happens and i saw that like making circles through like lawyers and people that are like oh you actually were totally failed by the system and stuff like that mm. and i'm like oh right i forgot i'm an artist i don't know why i let all this horrible stuff just make me forget that i can do things because it huh. does that's like one of the most insidious parts of it you forget what you're good at you forget your value and, you know, seeing that was a turning point, I'm like, oh, right, I can actually maybe affect change. So I should try to target people who aren't online reading these things because they're by and large the people who are like making up jury pools for, for any sort of court cases that go to these things. They're, Whoa, okay. they're, they're like law enforcement officers. They're parents of kids who might knee jerk and pull away the Internet when uh, if they're get, if their kids are being targeted when it's like the Internet is often the only support system a lot of weird kids have. Yeah. Yeah, that is the, that is what's so interesting to me. I mean, that is the real world component of this or the non-internet component of this. Because like you will hear people say often, especially these days, and, and those of us who are like were not in any way targeted but were privy to a lot of the Gamergate stuff is like, oh, people will be like, oh, well, it's it's quieted down. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, For you, maybe. <laughs> well, I, right. No, and I'm saying like I, I know that's not yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. And part of that is because like there's a whole world outside of Twitter. There's a whole world outside of certain threads or 4chan where it's like there's a lot of problems to be solved. Oh, for sure. And like Gamergate, you know, while it may have gotten a name in August when I was targeted, like it was building off the backs of like something that's been a problem for a long time, pretty much ever since like mainstream adoption of the Internet. You know, at like when people really started participating on social media all the time, it's like back in the back in the day with the Internet, most people had sort of more of a measured reaction to it. Like if you were online, you were kind of savvy already to, you know, Internet culture, like just even, for example, to take the term trolling uh -huh. is actually trolling. What? Yeah. Say more. So um, if you go back, because the, the original definition of trolling was like throwing out bait to see, like things that were very clearly disingenuous, like mm. like. Basically, I am not good at computer. How'd this get in here? Something yeah. to like sort of mess with, you know, new people that were coming online, especially during this thing called the Endless September, where there's like this this turning point in the Internet with like floods of new users that would start coming in September because I believe of the way that colleges had brought people online. So there'd be all these new people oh. that didn't know how to behave and would just kind of like. So that was happening every September? Yep. And okay. once that became current and, and a lot like there was this constant influx of new users that maybe didn't understand netiquette, which is a word we don't use anymore. Mm. Um, the, there was a 
term coin called the endless September of like mm. now with AOL and all these new people online, they're just going to come on and do whatever and they don't know how to behave. But you know, it's just, we're just surrounded by newbies constantly. Ooh, um, yeah. So trolling was sort of a way to moderate, right. By throwing out this like really oblivious thing. And, and it's actually reflected in both the Korean and Japanese terms for, um, for trolling as well. They're all fishing terms. Oh, okay. So, but because of the way English works, trolling and trolling are spelled the same. Mm. Wait, so, so in what way is it a way to moderate? Um, basically by little, like kind of safe little embarrassments is, is the easiest way for, for like internal communities to be like, oh, haha, he didn't get that that was a joke. And then he's like, oh, I got that that was a joke now. That was, okay, that was okay. a really dumb question okay. for me to ask or a really dumb thing for me to say. So it's like, it's like sussing out who's a noob, but then doing it in a safe or limited way. Yeah. It's kind of like watching someone fall on their face for not getting an in joke. Okay. But that all seems really negative. That doesn't seem like moderation in a way that's like... It's like self-moderation, right? Mm. And it, it's more like a, hey, you don't really know what you're doing here, guy. Maybe you should lurk more. Okay. But it's not... Man, it still sounds like hazing, right? It still sounds like right. yeah, trial it's, by it's, fire. Like It's... Obviously, it's not... Like, depending on context, that becomes like a really douchey thing to do versus like just like a ha-ha, you mm-hmm. fell for this insincere thing. Like, because you... like yeah. yeah. You can do that with friends all the time, like just straight face, facedly tell a, a joke that they don't get as a joke. And then they're like, ah, you got me. So it, yeah. it depends. But yeah, like that's at least where the origin of the word comes from. Okay. At least as far as I can tell through a lot of research. Man, I love internet terminology. Oh God, if I could like get away with being an internet anthropologist, I'd be all over that. Why don't we say netiquette anymore? Um, Aside from I, that, we don't use Because it's embarrassing, I think. It's, it's an embarrassing term. Wait, you're not a fan of Sandra Bullock's The Net? Oh, I'm such a fan of that movie, Teddy. It's so good. Yeah. Oh, I, my God. I've, like, ended up with, like, this rash of people in my life that have never seen Hackers. Yeah. So, lately, I've been able to force people to sit down and watch Hackers and for the first time and just get watch them get angry at it. Like, my co-writer for the current project, I <laughs> believe, has not seen it. I'm like, you need to wait until we're together because this is the this best is happening. thing. It's the best movie. <laughs> so, let's... I want to jump back to, like less of the why and more the how yeah okay. with you um so writing writing you're a writer supposedly yeah well everyone's supposed well everyone is <laughs> everyone is supposedly a writer and then some people more are more supposedly writers than other um i'm gonna put that on my business card alleged writer you should yeah you should more alleged writer because everyone's <laughs> an alleged writer yes perfect how's the experience been of writing a book versus doing like writing in games and stuff that is like one of the biggest uh, things that I think a lot of writers struggle with is crossing mediums, especially when it comes to games. So it's interesting to me to go backwards. To think, yeah. <laughs> um, it's easier in some ways, but it's less fun. You know, like I, I really like writing for games because uh, it's not all about you. Like you give up some of the control of the narrative to this third party that you have never met or spoken to ever. Uh, it's like throwing a, a message in a bottle out to sea and, and seeing if you get one back. And I, I really like that. And it's like, mm. I don't know. My approach is very much like trying to do some weird kind of dance with this person that I've never met. And mm-hmm. I like that. It's fun. It's I want to have a back and forth, mm-hmm. um, even if it's like all pre-planned and stuff. I actually get a lot out of talking to magicians about game design um, for that reason, because it's all about the manipulation of attention and yeah, this, yeah. this interaction with this thing you've made that you have to like sort of front load mm-hmm. um, in pre-planning and stuff like that. Um, but with a book, it's like just it's 
pacing is different, like very different. Like pacing is probably the biggest thing is mm -hmm. instead of like having level design and all these things at your disposal to sort of, you know, free up some of how you want to pace it and give the player a lot of options for how, what they want to do and how they want to interact with your story and like give that control to them. It's like, no, you have to do everything from start to finish. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's drilling down to a single discipline and not having the advantage of like art and systems and, and stuff like that and to have that participatory uh, games are probably the best at show don't uh, show don't tell than mm -hmm. any other medium because they have to be involved. Right. Yeah. And not having that strength and just having to sit there and put all of it there in front of the reader versus mm -hmm. like guiding the player. It's been an interesting kind of conversion, but then it's like, how do I translate level design into narrative design? Like how mm -hmm. do I translate, you know, that sort of flow into pacing in ways that make sense, especially for, you know, something where, you know, if, if it's a game and uh, I don't, I've never, I've only made like semi-fictional games and that it's like still a narrative that I'm creating based off of right, you know, experiences from my life, but it's still a, a created narrative. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're writing nonfiction, it's a lot like digging through a massive garbage dump looking mm -hmm. for, for like the, the gems. Like editing a documentary except they're filming 24 seven. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's a very different process and it's nowhere near as much fun. <laughs> Why? Because like all the, all the, there's no making of new stuff. It's just like <laughs> yeah, it's labor. Like reorganizing and, and stringing together pre-existing things. And then also making sure that, you know, you're doing it right and that you're not, you know, especially if you're using your experiences to talk about a larger social issue, trying to make sure that you're not talking over other voices and mm. that you're, you're doing right by the other people affected in and, you know, you're not saying you're an expert on things you're not and all these other things that are up to scrutiny, whereas nobody can tell you you're wrong about your fictional world. <laughs> you know, like, you'd be surprised. OK, well, people can tell you <laughs> that you have plot holes or that you're, sure. you're making poor decisions that are like crappy and make people feel crappy when they play it. But yeah. nobody can tell you that definitively. No, that literally never happened. <laughs> yes, that's true. Like you're at least the god of your own world in that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Man, do you feel like. So, uh, I talked to, I talked to friends who like do a bunch of different work in different media and some of them feel like they don't have a medium mm -hmm. like, uh, Anthony Carboni jumps around or he's different communities, Yeah, you know? Um, so I wonder as you're working on a book, like, which could ostensibly put you in a different community, or I know you've done stand up or things mm -hmm. like that, where it's like, how deep in terms of your life, your social network, whatever, like how deep are you video games versus other communities that I, I don't know. I'm probably deepest in video games. Yeah. Um, though at least when I had more time, I was uh, pretty deep into uh, circus arts cause I was really into fire spinning and stuff like that. Cool. And the fire community is always really great. Like I've, I've yet to meet a crappy person that spins fire. I know they're out there. I know they're out there. Don't, don't <laughs> do not send me letters. Okay. But in my personal experience, the Fire Nation is the best nation. Yeah, I don't want to bring prejudice into this, but I was going to say, like, I thought most Fire people were, like, not cool. But you're saying that's... God, that's just, you know, we need better representations of the Fire tribe in media. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> everyone else is writing their story, and I wish someone would just come out and write, like, a like a long-form piece of nonfiction writing that would tell their story. Yeah, I mean, we, we get a bad rap. <laughs> okay, but so you're, like... You're still video games. Yeah, I'm, I'm super video games. Um, I think if nothing else, just because the time commitment's always so extreme. Mm. 
And because when I go to other mediums, um, I don't know, I, I think I'm in like weird video games. I'm also weirdly involved with like a lot of webcomic people, I think, mm-hmm. just because of my specific web embedded and comedy nature of my, my work. There's a lot of things that webcomic people have in common with indie games. And I really like talking to them about, you know, the same talent, like, because I think they're even a little bit ahead of us in terms of like having established mainstream things like Kate Beaton stuff is everywhere now, which is super awesome. Mm. And it's really good to see that sort of thing happen. Axe Cop started as a web comic and that's a TV show. And you know, there's a lot of roots there. They're like ahead of us by like a year and a half. Right. Yeah. Man, that's so interesting. Yeah. Like I remember I went to Comic-Con for the first time last year Mm -hmm. and walking around Artist Alley and being like, this is like the indie mega booth. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's super cool. Like I really want to go to um, SPX, the small, small press expo. Um, Okay. And, and yeah, the other thing is too, like a lot of web comics, people do like Kickstarter and stuff. Like, um, mm. one of my favorite creators in that space is named Spike and mm. she's done like a couple, she, she's done, done like flat out revolutionary stuff with Kickstarter models. Like, mm. I think she was the first person to be like, Hey, if we get overfunded, we're not going to give you more stuff. We're just going to pay our artists more. And there's actually That's like nice. a, yeah, no, she's yeah. awesome. She's so cool. And Smot Peddler itself is really awesome. It's like a lot of sexy comics done primarily by women and queer people. That's very explicit on being, you know, healthy, positive, <laughs> body positive, like friendly, approachable, sweet stuff. Wow. And that, that is fascinating and awesome. And yeah, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot of overlap there. So do they have the same relationship or I would say developing relationship with their version of triple A? Like are those, cause I, and what I mean by that is to say in like as few words as possible that indie games started being really revolutionary in terms of like pushing away from AAA and there being even like deep hatred for AAA amongst indies. Yeah. And now maybe those two are converging in interesting ways or there's a mutual understanding or, or respect. Like big question, but yeah, like does comics have their own dynamic between big and little? I mean, I'd have to ask my webcomics buddies about oh, that, okay. but I mean, just as a fan and as somebody who likes being on a fly of the, a fly on the wall for conversations like that, mm. it seems like there's a little bit of that, like, especially because like small press stuff and in, in the webcomic format just totally blew up a lot of stuff when, um, I believe like there was a very specific stranglehold on the industry in terms of like superhero comics and stuff being what everybody thought comics were. And mm. we kind of have that too, right? Like people think Mario and, and uh, Call of Duty when you're like, hey, video games. Yeah. They don't think about stuff like we make because they don't usually know it exists. Um, at least when you go out and talk to people, obviously, that are older or don't, you yeah. know, don't care about games as is. Like that's usually the outsiders looking in. Or any non-enthusiasts. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think comics still to a certain extent have that problem. I know a lot of people when they are like, oh, I'm thinking about, I've heard, I, like Miss Marvel, I think has been a big th- entry point for a lot of people to get into comics because it's like a non-traditional uh like they've got like a woman of color that's featured in it and she's Mm. hilarious and adorable and they'd be like oh is this what comics are comics Mm. can be hilarious and adorable i didn't know they could be hilarious and adorable and then be like oh hey yes dear reader there's (laughs) so much let me show you the world and it's like yeah look at all these things look at like rat queens and saga and oh hey do you want to step away from that entirely well look at all these web comics that are just freaking free and out there and awesome and there's like a web comic for everyone man as a, as a consumer, I'm, I'm just going to dig into this, even though I know that's not like your community primarily, but like, <laughs> do you know like what the consumption model is for that? Cause like with games, there's still very, um, deep focused consumption points like steam, Yeah, you know, it's still kind of like, well, you kind of have to go there. There's itch, there's other stores, there's humble, but like if you're making a game and it's indie and you're not going into a console, you go to steam. Mm-hmm. I think with, with comics, especially with web comics, like it's, a bit more decentralized than that. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know of any one 
hub that I'm like, oh man, I want to read a new comic. I'm going to go to blank to find a new comic that I like. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually just ask other people, but I mean, since web comics live on the web and, and don't have to be like downloaded, um, I think that's, uh, that's yeah. probably like the distribution for web comics is way simpler than the distribution for games. Mm. Also the budgets are totally different. Like it's like sitting down and drawing a comic and putting it online versus like having a team and sure. sitting down and like needing to possibly feed people for like a year. Yeah. You know, so I think that's that definitely changes. Um, the, the monetization uh, angle is also interesting too. And one of the reasons I, I think I was one of the first game developers on Patreon, um, and I, I heard about Patreon because my webcomic friends were doing it, and that was back when I was doing the web, the new game every two uh, weeks. Like yeah. that was web embeddable and stuff. I'm yeah. like, oh, maybe I can, maybe that's how I can monetize this. Let me look at what web comics is doing since we have a lot of the same challenges. Huh. Well, how do you feel about that now? Like, if you were for your next, the next thing you do that's a game. Like, what, what are you interested in doing in terms of model? Oh, it's tricky because all of my games right now are free outside of, like, stuff that I've I've worked on yeah. um, with other people. Like, Framed, I was the narrative designer on. I wasn't, like, you know, the leader right. um, that got to make those calls, right? Um, and I really like making my work free. Um, I think it's really cool. A, a lot of what I do design-wise is around making games accessible for people that don't necessarily think games are for them. Mm. Um, but this current game I'm working on, um, I, I guess I just dictate model based on what the what would make, make the most sense for the game itself. So like for the current game, or one of the two current games that are sort of tied together, but I'm not going to go into that. Um, it's something that I, in my head, when I envision players interacting with it, mm-hmm. I'd like them to be sitting on a couch with friends joking around. Okay. So that screams consoles to me. Yep. Right? Yeah. Um, but then at the same time, it's like, I, ooh, but a lot of people who don't have consoles, I still want to make games for them. So it's like, okay, but that, that means then that I need to have some kind of PC component mm-hmm. and then put it in a place that might not necessarily, you know, that, that non-enthusiast might not go. So it's like, what does that even look like? I don't know. Walmart. Oh, God, no. Distri- <laughs> distributing PC games at Walmart. Yeah, that sounds great. I'll just, DVDs. I'll just leave a basket, like a, like a basket of sad puppies. <laughs> but there's games in it. But there's games in there. I'll like draw sad puppy faces on it. Ah, uh, man, that's hard. Yeah. Releasing things for free is hard. Yeah. And I mean, like trying to not, and that's the thing is like, I can't, I don't think I can release this game for free because it's got the biggest, I've never led a team this large before and yeah. I have to make sure they get paid. Yeah. Right. So, and then it's like this whole other like layer of responsibility. I'm not just responsible to my game, but yeah. I'm responsible to the people that I work with and yeah. I have to make sure that they have good experiences. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and also you're an indie creator and like you, like longevity is a scary thing to think about in terms of like money and continuing to have money, reliable money. Oh, yes. So I don't think about it. <laughs> okay, cool. Let's think about it. No. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I, yo, yeah. I mean, I don't get paid for this podcast. Yeah, fair enough. At all. So I understand that. It's, no, yeah. And that, I think that's like sort of a thing with the projects that I end up throwing myself at is like money is an afterthought almost. Mm. Even oh, though, we were talking about this the other day. Yeah. I like this topic. Yeah. Sorry, keep going. No, how do we start talking? We were talking about it on the street in terms of like, um, that you have to put energy into it and like making money is hard. Yes. And like, no matter where you are in your career, um, you know, like I'm not super far in my career, but 
Hyperlight has, has been doing well, mm -hmm. but I've totally released stuff in the last year that just like burp, just went away. Yeah. Like we, I did like a tiny thing with, with Brendan Chung called Fitzpackerton, which was like a jam game mm -hmm. and we didn't do anything. We just put it out and we tweeted yeah. it out and like people played it, but we didn't make a profit on it. We weren't right. trying to make, like you can always lose money on your projects no matter how <laughs> well known you are. Yeah. It's like every time you make a project, it's kind of like buying a lottery ticket. Yeah. And sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. There are different mitigating factors mm. that can make it more or less likely. But at the end of the day, you could be at the top of your game and still totally fall on your face. Right. So like the business of making games is something that that I attribute a lot of like when people talk about the indie apocalypse, they're attributing like uh, um, a trying to catch up with the state of a maturing medium, which is no, you actually have to be a business person. Yeah. And you have to look out for the making money of your game for yourself and for your, like you're saying for your collaborators. Yeah. And I mean, there's a different, like charging for something changes expectations too. And it's like, how do you, mm. how do you nav navigate that? Like, well, what do you mean? I mean, in just, just in terms of quality and if production values, I think is probably yeah. the biggest one. Um, quality definitely. Cause you definitely see a lot of people complaining that certain experiences aren't maybe 60 hours long. And even when an experience doesn't really need to be that long, yeah. you know, there, like there's so much loaded baggage when, and when it comes to expectations and games specifically, like yeah. any other medium I've flitted around to, it seems like everywhere else is more open to experimentation. Mm. And I, again, that could be totally anecdotal. Don't send me letters, but it, no, I, I agree with you. Yeah. It's like we've trained our consumers to very specifically want, you know, this narrow, yeah type range of things which is like it, that was an interesting thing to to come at depression quest with because i would say it's like probably more well known outside of game circles hmm. like um a lot of my player base are, aren't people who play games you know hmm. like at all and the game is very specifically designed to, to court those people which is why it's like doesn't require a download yeah. all, the only interface things you need to know how to do is read a thing and choose a thing like that's all you need to know you don't need to know how to do twin stick controllers and do that thing where the first time someone has it, they just like spin around in circles pointing at the floor because <laughs> yeah. that takes time to build up. And a lot of people don't remember those things. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're relying on, or even just water in games. Mm. What happens the first time you see water in game? You die if you jump into it or you jump into it and swim. Yeah. So you're looking at this thing that we're all made out of and going, is that going to kill me randomly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like I've got 20 years of game language telling me that there's a high possibility that water will kill me. Mm-hmm. Kills you in hyperlight. There you go. We were worried about that. Yeah. And I mean, like, that's such a specific design conceit. Like, yeah. I, I had a friend's grandma play uh, Mario with us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, like, that first pit, like, after the blocks that yeah. comes up? Yeah, yeah, She's like, oh, I wonder what's up down there. I'm going to go exploring. It's like, oh, that's no. a perfectly valid thought. Yeah. Like, the, like for she, normal. Yeah, exactly. For someone who's unacquainted with games and the vocabulary we've, we've yeah. built a foundation on. And I think it's really important to interrogate those, those design decisions oh, always. Yeah. And, and, and like you're saying, like, that is a difficult thing to fight against when it comes to pricing and and charging people for games. Like yeah. we we had absolutely had conversations about Hyperlight that were like, man, this game is really big. Like it's all, like we're charging twenty dollars for it, which is a good price. But like, man, I wish we we could charge more. Like we spent so much time, and this game is so much content, and like yeah. for many players, it's like twenty hours long. And we look at a game like The Witness that mm -hmm. it, that came out previously or before us, and like that game was I think forty. Yeah, you know, and we're like, well. And we know that the answer to why that game is 40 or one of the answers is that it's 3D. Yeah. Yep. Like that people see our game. They're like, this is 2D. So it's a cheap game. Yep. Which is like such a, it's, that's like such a confusing thing to think about. Right. And mm. I'm very curious how people are going to treat my FMV game because it's like, 
there's nothing to fall back on for that. Right? FMV is even more more than it's it's even higher poly yeah, than the so witness. Yeah, so many polys, so many polys, all of the polys. You can use that by the way. Higher more more polys than the witness. <laughs> I should. I should. <laughs> if you need like a box quote, yeah, or like a billboard quote. I've never been on a billboard. Oh, we should get a billboard. I would appreciate that. Just put your face on it and like a, a speech balloon that just says "More polys than witness." <laughs> Don't say the game anywhere. Just use saying that one line. And you're like, yeah, that's 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 our launch trailer. Like actual audio. Yeah. Buy my book. Yeah. Oh, I totally need to get one of those. Uh-huh. Like, oh my when god. The book comes out. Like, I've been saying that since I accepted the the thing. I'm like, you know. The first thing I need to do as soon as the, as the book comes out is get the Jay Sherman by my book stand up. Uh, kids, if you're listening and you're not familiar with the animated series The Critic, you're missing out. You should check it out. It's it's that's great. It's a deep that's a deep uh it deep stinks. reference. God. So good. Um okay, so I probably should should stop talking soon or make us oh, stop. Oh, we barely talking talked soon. about games. Oh. I know, let's talk more about something. Okay. Let's talk about FMV. Okay. Let's keep going deeper. All right. What do you love about FMV games? Everything. Okay. Um, I mean, I love, I love, like, so the thing with loving campy things with me is not like, haha, look how dumb and, and wrongheaded this was. It's like, look at how completely somebody gave their heart to this hmm. and just totally fucked it up. <laughs> Wait, because, because the quality is so off? Everything about it is off. Like, hmm. there, there's like one FMV game that had like decent ish acting. And but the, aside from that, it's like hot mess always and always. What's that shining gem? Uh, I would say the Dadalus Encounter. Okay. It's a. Okay. I, I grew up with a 3DO instead of a real person console. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a fair thing to say. Yeah, I mean, my dad got it at a garage sale after it had already failed, so it's not even like a fancy thing I had. It's like, no, this is this weird thing that my dad brought home in a gross box. <laughs> that I'm just like, what is this? Oh, it's my new best friend. Yeah. Um. And yeah, like. The Dadalus Encounter was, I, I don't know if it was on anything but 3DO. It might have been an exclusive. Hmm. Um, but it, it like actually did good things with the FMV genre. But, you know, it was after FMVs had already failed yeah. and nobody really cared about them anymore. Um, but yeah, like most of the time it's just like this cheesy night trap-esque nightmare of bad design decisions and bad acting and ridiculous plot lines. Uh-huh. Um, but I love that. Like, it's so committed. They they took it so seriously. They were speaking about it like it was the future of games, right? Oh, yeah. And they, they totally committed. And I think that there's a certain beauty to be found in giving your heart to something completely and then failing utterly miserably. <laughs> well, that was tied to, like, even bigger business things. Like, fucking Sewer Shark <laughs> was part of Sega CD, right? It was yep. like, we have CDs now, which means we can do video. Yep. Which is more polys than... If some game in the future were to come out <laughs> called The Witness. Yeah. So that's interesting because it sounds again like you, what you love about them or why you maybe, and to correct me if I'm wrong, want to make them mm-hmm. is that, is that established language of games. Is it, It's not, it's not yeah. that you want to make a movie with film in it, or not that you want to make a game with film in it, but you want to make a bad FMV game. A very lovingly crafted bad one. Yeah. But not like... No, I'm not creating this thing so people can laugh at it and say it's dumb. There's got to be that element of heartfelt like the the game one of the games i'm working on right now is basically a love letter to failure because i feel like we don't accept failure right now like there's all this language it might just be a western culture thing where mm. failures failure's not an option and and it's like you can't ever admit when you're wrong we don't even teach people how to apologize well yeah. right because you never want to be seen you want to be seen as perfect and knowing what you're doing at all times any sort of running the risk of failure is like unacceptable yeah. and so many poor decisions are made 
yeah. by, by denying that fundamental part of our humanity and that fundamental part of learning. Like I've taught enough grassroots edu like games education things at this point to know that the number one thing that keeps people from trying things that they would otherwise love is failure. And fear of failure? Yeah, yeah. Not just fear of failure, but when they get started mm. and they're not instantly amazing at it, they quit because they don't think that they're, they, they've bought into this lie about talent that means that you're automatically immediately good at something, which nobody is. Yeah. Right? Like there might be like some bell curve person who's, who's screwing up the curve for the rest of us that that's like really instantly <laughs> brilliant at things, but like who cares about them? They're fine. We don't have to worry about them. For yeah. the rest of us, yeah. we're going to fail a lot on the, the way to doing anything that we actually enjoy. Yeah. Um, I mean, I still hate all the things I make. I actively hate all of my work. Like as soon as it, it's, as it's out of me, I'm like, ugh. That's such a, that brings such a joy to making it because you're like, well, at least right now I don't hate it as much. Yeah. I already <sighs> hate, I definitely hate it. It's but I will hate it more after it's out. It's like every project that I'm I'm making is like every time I, I fall in love with this beautiful person and then I slowly grow to hate the way they eat their cereal. Uh, and by the time it, it ships, it's like, I just don't, you might be the most beautiful person in the world, but I don't want to fucking look at you anymore. At least put that in an FMV game. <laughs> it's like that just actual scene. Yeah. It's a metaphor. Where, it's you, metaphor. where you hate somebody eating their cereal. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. Okay. So when you say it's a, it's about failure or like, like, are you talking about you want to embed it in like, there's a lot of player failure or the characters are failing in the narrative? Like All of the things like using, okay. using failed technological dead ends is the, is the very things that we build this game with, you know, mm. like that's why it's FMV is that's a failed line of games. Yeah. Yeah. All of these things, because mm. it's like, it's like what I was saying earlier, it, like failure really matters and it's, it's actually a good thing. Failure mm. is very often something that is absolutely necessary for any kind of personal growth. And I feel like this fear of failure stops so many people from doing so many things yeah. and failure becomes a thing that we beat, beat ourselves up over like yes. super aggressively. And, you know, we hold ourselves to these ridiculous standards that are superhuman. And, and I think there's so much more to failure than that. And that it's actually a really important and beautiful thing. And in a super sad way, like this is the first game that I'm making since, you know, basically my, my old life was wiped out. Hmm. So if anything, I'm trying to prove to myself that there's life after failure, you know, yeah. like, and in kind of a funny twist, if the game does terribly, then it's on message. <laughs> <laughs> so it's win-win. It's win-win as long as we don't fall in that uncanny valley between terrible and, and so bad it's good where you just end up being boring. Yeah. You know, which is one of the reasons why when you're gonna, that's why you have to commit, right? Like you really have to go for it and you can't do it with like a smirking half knowing thing. Like you have to commit and do and be ridiculous, be the most ridiculous person possible. Like the term camp comes from like somebody who is very flamboyantly posing, you know, and, and like the worst sin you can commit in deliberately doing camp is to not take it seriously and to not really invest and, and ride that weird ass wave wherever it goes. Including failure. Especially, Especially failure. failure. Especially failure. Hmm. I feel I've been thinking about this a lot when it comes to just difficulty in games, because when we started on Hyperlight, there was this messaging of like, oh, it's like Zelda or whatever, but modernized. Yeah. And there's so many people that are like, one of the things you do with modern game design is like, you are nicer about failure. Yeah. That like, you don't die as much. When we fall in the water in Hyperlight, we just take one damage instead yeah. of dying. Yeah. People are mad about things in the game that they can't beat. Mm -hmm. because it's scary to fail. Yeah. And I guess with my game, it's like coming at the total opposite direction where you're supposed to fail. Mm. Failure is encouraged. Mm. 
failure is the only thing that makes playing the game worth a damn. When you say that, do you mean like on the road towards no longer failing or just to experience failure? To experience and embrace it and find something about yourself in it, you know, like all the characters I'm writing right now, uh, like the game takes place in a game world, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, this is all tentative. So again, don't send me letters, Um, (laughs) but it's taking place in a game world, like on a server or a game that has otherwise failed. Like the game's over, like say EverQuest shut down. Mm -hmm. It's like the world is in this world of failure. And all these people came to games, like the players of the the in-game game came to games because something had gone, something terrible happened in their life. And the games were the place that they could turn to whether it was like isolation or or disability you know like a variety of things that you know coming together in this this weird little pocket of you know misunderstood beauty that others would deem failure is really where you find yourself because i mean that's one of the reasons that i fell in love with games at an early age i was super isolated and this was like my the world that i lived in sucked Mm. and being able to to go into these other worlds and be somewhere else for a while i think is one of the only reasons i'm still here do you think that failing in those sort of environments like does that wean you back into being comfortable with with the world outside of that it probably depends you know like some people get way too serious about games in ways that like the people that act like assholes in multiplayer, basically, mm, mm, mm. you know, they take it very seriously and they, they don't accept failure. They bring that same attitude yeah. towards it. Whereas like failure is a crucial part of, of game design because that's how you teach the player anything. Yeah. So, you know, letting people try and fail in a safe environment, I think is very powerful and letting people relate to each other in a safe environment. Like, you know, like digital worlds were the only place that I could talk about being queer before I accepted it myself. Cause I was from a super redneck town and that was just not an acceptable thing to be there. Yeah. So escaping into this other world, whether it was like Neopets chat rooms <laughs> or <laughs> more specifically Yahoo RP taverns. I was really big into. Whoa. Yeah. And you would have those little out of character conversations where you type period and then um, circle and then bigger circle and then parentheses. So it looked like a thought bubble. Okay. Uh-huh. So it was like the out of character conversations. Like we'd have oh, these really cool. deep out of character conversations Whoa. and, you know, just kind of figuring myself out in that environment where it was safe for me to do. So it was one of the reasons I'm still here. Well, I'm glad you're still here. That's all right. <laughs> it's like probably better than the alternative. I think. Ah. I don't know about um, that's super cool. I'm really fucking excited for all that. Yeah. Um, hopefully it comes out as good as, it is in my head and it's not another failed project in my archive of sad failed projects. Well, at least like, I don't know. And if it is again on message. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. You're, you're going to win no matter what. It's not that failure is not an option. It's literally the only option. <laughs> that's, a, that's almost as good as my more polys than the witness. Oh yeah. We, I guess we need two billboards. That's okay. Or front and back two sided. Oh, nice. nice. Double sided <laughs> billboard. That sounds weirdly sexual. Double sided billboard. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'm going to end right on that. Okay, good. Thanks for coming. This is super great. Yeah, of course. Bye. I am so glad we got to have that conversation, and I'm so glad that you have stuck through and listened uh, to hear all the things that we got to got to cover. Um, this is Playscape. Playscape LA, thanks for listening. Uh, we're going to be a weekly show moving forward, probably Mondays. I'm totally going to be consistent. It's going to be great. 
Um, I really appreciate those of you who have written in. If you have anything you want to talk to me about or ask me, uh, you can email me at uh, playscape at idlethumbs.net or you can just tweet at me at teddydief, T-E-D-D-Y-D-I-E-F. Uh, and I hope that you will do both of those things or one of those things. Uh, and if you happen to be at PAX East, send me a tweet or something just to say hi. Um, I will be mostly relaxing and and uh, hanging out with some friends I haven't seen in a long time. Uh, but maybe we'll get a chance to say hey. Uh, this is the show. I hope you all are doing well. Have an awesome week. I will talk to you next week. Bye.